And like I said, again, I'm David Scott. David Eldridge is not here. He's on vacation. He'll be back next week. And, and generally, um, I love uh, that when David is out of town, um, I get opportunities to speak and to preach and to speak to all three of our Sunday services. Um, but the last few times, um, I feel like that there has David has not reciprocated in our relationship the way that he should. And so I want to talk to you guys a little about that while he's gone. You can talk to me about it next week. So for me, when, when I come in, I feel like I, I was saying earlier, I said, this is David's house. Jillian correctly noted that this is not David's house. This is God's house. But this is David's room in God's house. And so when I come here, I try to be like, I don't move around his furniture, right? Like I try to, I, I try to not maybe use some of the language that I would use up the street. I don't use bad language up the street. I just use different terms, right? So anyway, we won't get into that. I try to dress the part, right? I pick my nicest pants and I'll wear them for y'all. And so I try to make sure that I would honor him in that. But on the other side, the last few times I've spoken, I, I feel like that David has set me up for something. So two times ago when he went out of town, it was March and I got to speak about whether or not we should pay taxes, right? It was the scripture from Luke, if you guys remember this, where they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, render unto Caesar what Caesar and God what's God. It was the primary season. It was real awkward for all of us, right? And so I thought, huh, interesting. He went out of town for that passage. But I thought, that's not him. He loves me. He didn't do it on purpose. It's just a coincidence. It happened. Then the last time I spoke, I drew Ananias and Sapphira from the book of Acts. And so if you remember that one, if you don't know that one, that's when Ananias and Sapphira, this couple, they either die or they're killed by God. You can kind of flip a coin to what theologians think about that. Um, and it has something to do with the fact that they get this money and they don't give it all to the church. So he left me that one to preach about um, this summer. And so I thought it's a coincidence, whatever. I'm, I'm going to get something this time around. It's going to be good. We're in Acts. It's, it's going to work for me this time around. And then I started to read the passage that we're dealing with this week. And it's, it's interesting, um, to say the least. We're going to look in Acts chapter 15. If you want to go there, we're going to finish up 15 and go into 16. And as I started to read through it, it just doesn't read kind of the way that you often expect the scriptures to read. And so I was trying to get deeper. I was trying to get to the point. So I went to these commentaries. If you guys don't know, a lot of times that's what you do. You guys get paid to, these, these theologians and professors get paid to write these books so that guys like me who don't know as much as them can go and, and read their stuff and, and, and find out what did they see and what did they know about the history of that time and kind of what specifically is that, is that scripture trying to say to people in this room. So I make sure that we're getting at the universal principle. And one of those commentaries I read is I read through those commentaries, one of them uh, that I love, uh, there was this one section, this one thing uh, that the commentator said that really stuck out to me, and I just want to share it with you guys. This is what he says. He says, this passage does not have any explicitly stated principles that can be unmistakably affirmed for today. That's what you come here for, right? You come here for, for explicitly stated principles that can be unmistakably affirmed for today. And this guy who gets paid to study and write books and do all these things, and like this is his thing, acts is his thing, focuses in on this passage, and he says, here's the deal. This passage does not have any explicitly stated principles that can be unmistakably affirmed for today. So I'm here to tell you, two times is a coincidence, three times is a trend. So if you guys want to talk to David about that, when he comes back, I'll let you guys. So the passage we're going to look at tonight doesn't unfold like you necessarily expect the Bible to unfold. But there's an end. There, there's a second part uh, to what that theologian said. And this is the second part. He said, but there are many human experiences with which we can identify and through which we see God at work. 
So as we look at the passage tonight, I want you to think about it um, in in a little bit of a different way, maybe, than you approach the scriptures. I'm going to give you two metaphors. Maybe one of them will work. Um, One's not a metaphor. One's an explanation. But maybe one of these will work to give you something to grab onto. The first uh, is think about the idea of running versus jogging, right? Are there any runners in here? Does anybody run? All right. Do you have any joggers in here? Does anybody jog? Right. There's a difference. If you didn't know, there's a difference. Right. And if you didn't know, you're probably a jogger. I like to run. I don't like to jog. Running has defined times, defined limits. Usually you're competing against something. At least it's the clock. If it's nothing else. Right. There's a goal in mind and you're ready to go. Jogging is like I'm just out to enjoy the day. Right. I'm just jogging. And, and there are physical benefits, and maybe there's emotional benefits, and there's mental release. And, and I might notice things along the way as I jog, and I might think about things along the way as I jog, and, and they affect me, right? And so I love to run. And when it comes to the scripture, I love to run. When it comes to preaching the scriptures, I love to run. I love to find places. I love to find times. I love to find moments. And as I look at the scripture, what I hear God saying is you've got to be willing to jog. You've got to be willing to just come alongside the story in these people's lives and and see what's going on. And let me speak to your heart as you come alongside it. And so that's what I hope that you're able to do during this time. We're going to read through the scripture. I'm going to share some things um, that I notice. But but mostly I think this is an opportunity for us to look at people's lives and and, and, and look how we can identify with them and see what God is doing um, in response to them. So if the jogging, running thing doesn't work for you, think about it as some scriptures are prescriptive and some scriptures are descriptive, right? Sometimes when you read the scriptures, it's prescriptive. It says, do this, this is clear, this is the result. Those are the explicitly stated principles that can be unmistakably affirmed for today. That is prescriptive. But sometimes scripture is descriptive. And when we miss that, sometimes we can really sort of get off, right? Sometimes scripture is descriptive. Sometimes scripture shows us human experiences with which we can identify and through which we can see at work. Scripture describes situations and says to us, this is how people act. This is how God acts. And we're able to draw things from that based on where the spirit is moving in our own hearts. So like I said, I hope that as we look at this scripture, you're able to do that. So Acts 15 Starting in 36, you get a drink of this water because it's long. There's lots of names of cities that I've never heard of. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. 
So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea, and so from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyteria named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded them. So when I started at the University of Georgia in the fall of 1997, I was a pre-journalism major. I'm pretty sure everyone who starts at Georgia is a pre-journalism major. Anybody else pre-journalism? No. All right. So one of the only classes I took in relation to journalism, they taught this phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. You guys heard that before? If it bleeds, it leads, right? It's something they use particularly in broadcast news, which is that if something is catastrophic, if something is, it will catch people's attention, they put it at the top of the broadcast. And so if it bleeds, it leads, kind of got into my vernacular pretty quickly. And one of the things that I realized is that for me, in my heart, in my perspective, in my mind, in the way I approach, approach things, if it bleeds, it leads. Whatever feels immediate feels eternal a lot of times. Whatever feels immediate sets perspective. And for a lot of us, it's immediate pain that, that causes us to focus in one way or another. It causes us to look at one thing instead of another. And when we feel immediate pain, what we start to think is that the thing that needs to change in our lives is our circumstances, right? If only we could change our circumstances, then it would be different. If only I could change the people around me who have made me bleed, right, then it would be different. If only I could change my situation, my financial situation, my this, my that, if only I could change the situation that has put me in this pain, then my life would be transformed. Then I could really get after the things that God wants for me, right? What happens is that our pain becomes prescriptive in how we view God, how we view life, and how we approach it. And, and the scriptures offer us a completely different idea of what's transformational, in Romans chapter 12, it's a verse, 12, 1 is a verse that I come back to again and again in my life because it surprises me because it's not the way that I think about my life being transformed. Romans 12, 1 says that we're transformed not by the changing of our circumstances, not by the changing of the people around us, but by the renewing of our minds. That transformation happens when we move from the perspective of immediate pain or immediate pleasure into the perspective of the spirit. And when I look at this passage, it's interesting to me, and it unfolds in ways to me that I see life unfolding a lot, which is chaos and confusion and misdirection and pain and loss and division and disagreement. But in the midst of all of that, one of the great things, one of the great opportunities we have as people who jog up alongside this scripture is to see that there's more than the immediate pain that people are experiencing, but there's the Spirit's perspective to lead us in our understanding. 
It's easy to forget that they didn't have that, right? It's easy to forget that they weren't reading the whole book, right? That they weren't looking at the end of it. And Paul wasn't like, okay, cool. This all works out with me and Barnabas in the end. But I think as we dig into this passage, we're just going to look at four different elements of this passage together. And I think for some of us tonight, we are harassed by pain. And I'm not saying you choose that harassment, right? A lot of times it chooses you. And a lot of times it comes at you. But there's pain in our life. There's loss. There's confusion. There's misdirection. There's, there's all these things. And it harasses us. And it shapes the way that we view our lives. And it shapes the way that we view ourselves. And it shapes the way that we view God. And one thing I think God wants to say to us is no to that. You are not harassed and helpless. You are sheep with a good shepherd. And there is a God, and there is a spirit perspective. And I think as we look at some of these harassed people and we see the spirit's perspective, I think for some of us tonight, what you're going to get to experience is God speaking in to your immediate pain to give you his perspective. Not, not as a harsh God who would say, you need to get over this, but as a loving shepherd who says, I've got this. I'm working in the midst of this. And for some of us, we're not experiencing immediate pain right now, but we need to recognize we live in a world that experiences immediate pain a lot. And as those that God calls to be image bearers, there is a calling on us not just to be okay if we're okay. Right? We, we can't just say, I'm at peace, and so the world is at peace. And on that end, I think God is calling some of us to be boldly spiritual in our perspective on the things that are happening in our worlds and the things that are happening in the lives of others. And begin to pray the Spirit's perspective into those things and begin to speak the Spirit's perspective into those things. So I hope as we look at these over the little bit of time that we have left, that it will help you connect in one of those ways. So first is Paul and Barnabas. Right? A lot of, one of the things that, that is tough about this passage is that it gives one sentence expressions to, to really big deals. Right? There's this one sentence that says, so they disagreed, so the disagreement was sharp, so they parted ways. But what we need to remember, everything we know up into Acts this far, is that Paul and Barnabas were about as tight as two partners could be. Right? Barnabas was the one who vouched for Paul when nobody else believed him. Barnabas is the one who, who brought Paul in to these other communities. Paul and Barnabas had gone on all these journeys together. They'd experienced crazy things together. People had mistaken them for Greek gods and then thrown rocks at them to try to kill them. They had done all of these things together. I know you've got to read it. It's insane. They had done all these things together. And they'd even had conflict together and been able to work through it. And then something happens. Right? And we're not even really told 100% of what's going on. Right? But we know that there's disagreement, there's tension. That word for sharply divided, the, the connotation there is like red-faced frustration with somebody. Have you been there? You don't understand. How do you not understand that this is the right thing to do in that situation? Have you been there with somebody? Somebody you were partners with? Somebody you drove here with maybe? I don't know. And there's this sharp division among these guys. And, and what kills me about it is I want God to be prescriptive, right? Like I want God to tell me who's right. I want God to tell me whose side I need to be on in this story. And when he doesn't, I want to come up with reasons to believe that I'm on one side or the other. But the, the, the theologians, the commentators, they tell us, they say that Luke is almost intentionally being vague in that regard. That this passage isn't about 
who's right and who's wrong. But this passage is about the fact that sometimes two people end up in this place. Disagreement, tension, unsure who's right, but feeling like they're right. And the spirit looks at that and he says, I can use both. I can use both of you. I can use both of you. I I don't think, we're not told, but I don't think it was God's desire for two guys like Paul and Barnabas to be that sharply divided. I just don't see it in the totality of Scripture. So I'm not saying God was like, yeah, let's make them disagree so we can get more people out in the field. But I think God looked at this immediate painful moment and in his perspective, he said, I got this. I can do both. I can use both of you in this situation. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive and what God can do when there's even division, when there's even disagreement, when there's even tension, when there's even confusion about who's right. God looks at us and he says, I can use both. And for some of you, like, you just need to hear that in your own life. Some of you, your experience was like mine growing up, where when you were growing up, things like church became really tense between your parents because one of them was the on-time parent. I know we don't do that here, but some people like to get to church on time, right? You're familiar with this? That was a joke. You guys, just relax me. There you go. All right. So, some, one of your parents liked to be places on time. Did you have that parent? It was like, we got to get there on time. We got to get there on time. And I'll make you miserable to get there on time. And then the other parent was the like, relax, I don't have to be there on time parent. I'm the on time parent in my home. I am absolutely the on time parent. And my wife is not. And I'm pretty sure that she's wrong and that she might even be sinful, right? Like, because no, people are supposed to be on time. And she's, and she's almost definitely sure that I'm sinful the way my attitude becomes when we're not on time places. Right? And you, fit, and you sense this tension, even in your own home, over things. Things much more serious than that, but things like that. And there's this sense, and God's looking at both of you, and he's saying, what if I can use both? What if I can use one of you to teach your children or to teach the people around you about the principle of caring and honoring things, like things on the calendar? And what if I can use one of you to teach your children the principle about honoring relationships and not crushing everybody just to meet a clock? Right? What if? What if I can use both? And what if I can reach more and even more holistically if I use both? This plays into our culture in some ways that we just do not understand, do we? Look around at our culture. Like we do not understand the idea that two people could be completely divided and God could look at them and say, I could use both. I could use both, but the spirit longs to breathe that perspective. And the last part of that perspective is that God ultimately wants us to see That if we will submit to a spirit, even when we're divided, even when we're confused, even when we're tense, if we'll submit to a spirit, that there is ultimate reconciliation. Right? If you look down the road, Barnabas goes with John Mark. He becomes Mark, right? Who wrote the second gospel in the New Testament. And they go reach a whole other people group together. And John gets, I mean, and Paul gets Silas and Timothy, and we know all that story, and we'll read it going forward. And in the end, you see reconciliation in Paul's letters between Paul and Barnabas. You see reconciliation between Paul and Mark. And you see how this thing that in the moment felt so tense and so confusing probably and so painful. God said, I'm ultimately working through this and you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be harassed. There is immediate pain in your life, but you are not harassed and helpless. You have a good shepherd that is shepherding you in to your best. So there's Timothy. Again, there's a sentence with Timothy that we just sort of breeze over. And the sentence is, his mom was Jewish, but also a believer, but his dad was a Greek. 
We don't think much about that. But, but the underlying tones in that and the underlying tones, even in the fact that Timothy was not yet circumcised and that people knew him as a Greek, it, it is a tense moment. Because usually if you were Jewish, you were Jewish based on your mom's religion and heritage, not based on your father's. And so Timothy should have already been Jewish. He should have already probably been circumcised. It was passed down through the mother. But it hadn't happened. And it says, specifically, Timothy's mom was a believer, but his dad was a Greek. And so you can imagine that there's tension there. And those of you who've grown up in divided homes and tense homes and not sure, what am I? Timothy was probably asking, am I Greek? Am I Jewish? Am I a Christian? And in the midst of it, here comes Paul, and Paul says, you can come with me. And Timothy's thinking, awesome. And Paul's like, there's just one thing we have to do first. Imagine if you're applying for a job, and the one thing on their list, they said, we're ready for you. Circumcision. I can tell you there'd be one less person on staff at Stonebridge, at least. This, this shocking thing that was even probably more confusing because Paul had just argued against circumcision as a, as, as a qualification. But he looks at Timothy and says, you need to be circumcised. And Timothy's probably thinking again, what, what am I? Who, who am I? And on top of that, I don't know if you know this, but he was probably in some physical pain. And thinking, what is going on? I'm struggling. I, I'm unsure. There's actual pain and suffering in order to walk into what God is calling him into. And for some of you, that lands tonight. You're just not sure. You don't have the mission statement for your life. Right? You're not sure who you are or what you're doing. Or, or, or you're carrying some amount of pain and, and you just have no idea why it's happened. Or, or what's going to come of it. And the thing I think God wants you to know, the perspective I think God wants you to have is that God's definition of your future is far greater than anything that has defined your past. Timothy became one of the great leaders of the early church, a guy that Paul would send because he said nobody cares like Timothy. A guy that Paul trusted like he trusted himself. A young leader that became an example for people everywhere. The other thing I think God wants you to know if you're in that place tonight is that God will actually use your pain and suffering to reach people. Not, hear me, not God will cause your pain and suffering to reach people. But that God always uses pain and suffering to reach people that maybe otherwise would never have been reached. Right? For Timothy, it was the idea that once he was circumcised, he could connect with Jewish people in the synagogues and they would listen to him in a way that they wouldn't have listened to him before. For you, it's the opportunity to not just look at somebody who's lost a child or a parent or a sibling or a spouse and not just say, I have sympathy for you and I feel bad for you, but I have empathy for you and I know how you feel. And we all know what you earn when you have empathy in speaking into someone's life. And so my encouragement to you today, if you're dealing with pain, if it's physical, if it's emotional, if it's spiritual, God would look at you and say, that's, that's not for nothing. It may feel like it's for nothing, but it's not for nothing. I'm using it. Third, this is the one that gets me more than anything, um, just because I'm about to leave on a trip and I have a bad sense of direction and I know it's going to hit me and it just frustrates the heck out of me, right? That's Paul and his travel plan, right? So imagine you're Paul. You're leading a new group of guys. They haven't seen you be cool, Paul, so far. And, and you start to say, okay, we're going to go in this direction. And you start to travel. 
and then you kind of take a right turn and, and you start, well, we're actually going to go the long way. Well, why? Well, God's not going to let us go into Asia, right? And then you start to go in this direction and God says, no, you can't go there either. So you have to tell the guys, okay, no, we're going to go back in this direction, right? And then we're going to curve around here and then, hey, I had a dream and here's where I think we should go next. Now, Paul probably had this strong sense of self and maybe he didn't deal with these things, but I could imagine as we go through these things, that feeling of, God, I am trying to go the right way. I am trying to do the right things. But doors just keep closing again and again and again. And there are people watching me, and there are people depending on me, and what am I supposed to do? And maybe at some point you start to feel foolish, and you get that pain, and it starts to define your experience. But the good news is we get the Spirit's perspective on what's going on with Paul, right? And what we see is that God is building this team of people along the way. He's adding guys like Luke to this team along the way, right? He's, he's strengthening these guys, Silas, Timothy, and Paul. Imagine as they work through these things together and they listen to the Spirit together and they hit roadblocks together, how much that must have strengthened them going forward. And at the end of the day, God still looks at Paul in the midst of all of this and he says, don't worry, I'm going to make your work effective. There are people who need to hear what you have to say and I'm going to get you there. We don't know. It's not prescriptive. We don't know if God's keeping them out. We don't know why God's keeping Well, we do know that God's keeping them out, but we don't know why God's keeping them out. If it's because of Paul or because of other people or if God wanted him to go somewhere and didn't. We don't know any of that. But all we know is that the Spirit continues to work. The Spirit continues to work to build Paul towards his greatest end and towards his greatest destiny. And God wants to say the same thing to you. If you feel like, I keep trying to go, doors are closing, and, and I just feel foolish, God, and I'm not sure what you're saying. God would say the same things to you. Last is this, Lydia. I just like Lydia. This is just a personal thing for a moment. You're jogging with me just for a moment. I like Lydia. She just stands out to me as this different person in the scripture. Part of it is, yeah, she's a woman. Somebody 11 says, because she's a woman. And it is. Like, it's this remarkable situation, right, that, that you don't often see in the scriptures. That's what makes it remarkable. Not that she's a woman and she did something, but you don't often see those things, just making it clear, but you don't often see these moments in the scripture and God doesn't do them lightly, right? God doesn't do them not knowing, right? Like he doesn't do them not knowing what exactly he's saying in the midst of this. And, and, and so God takes the apostles to this place. So they finally get to a town, right? And there's no synagogue. And that's where they always go. They always go to the synagogue. And that's what I mean when I say there's no building. There's no building for them to go do what they do. And so they're kind of stuck. So on the Sabbath, they just go out the river to pray. That's their bet is we're going to pray. And then they get there and there are these unlikely people there, right? Unlikely people to sort of lead this, this part of the movement in this area, which is, which is a group of women. And one of them is this woman, Lydia. And we, we don't get this explicitly about Lydia, but, but most people agree that her backstory included some tough moments, right? She was most likely a widow. Lydia was most likely a widow. Um, because, uh, because the way that she interacts, the things that she does, and, and the way that she commands her house was not common in the first century for women to do that if there was a husband. Generally, the husband would do those things, not because it was better. That's just because that's the way that they worked. And so for Lydia to be able to do that, she was probably a widow. She was most, most likely single if she wasn't a widow, which was not a great place to be 
in Lydia's society. Women didn't have a ton of status and they had to work for the status that they got. And so she had worked really, really hard and kind of found this high end status as a businesswoman. And in the midst of this, she had become what they called a God fearer, a God worshiper which meant she didn't fit in with the Jewish people, so a synagogue wouldn't work for her. She didn't fit in with the people in the town that she lived in because they didn't worship God the way she worshiped God. So she went down to the river. And she went down to the river, and God met her. And and, and he gave her and the apostles together this sudden new life to what they could do when they went into a town. Right? This new life for her. In relationship with Jesus, this new life for them as she invites them into their home that they say, we can meet here. We, we can start doing things in these homes, these new opportunities to reach people they would never have reached otherwise. And new opportunities for her, for Lydia to use the status that God had given her to connect in ways that she never would have otherwise in a new community for all of them. Those of you who have lost, lost loved ones and lost your community know how important that is. And here's God telling Lydia and telling the apostles, I'm working, I'm moving, I'm always shepherding your story. And I think particularly for some people tonight, I think for you, it's I just don't have the stuff. Whatever the stuff is that makes you effective for God, I don't have it. Right? I don't have the time. I don't have the relationships. I don't have the resources. I don't have the personality. I don't have the status. I just don't have the stuff. And God looks at you and he says, that's fine. Other people have that stuff. I want to do new stuff with your stuff. He's just waiting to blow the doors off what you would expect he would do with you and what others would expect that he would do in your life. So here's the great thing about looking at a passage that's descriptive instead of prescriptive. It's that life's not often prescriptive, right? I wish it were. I wish, that life, was, I wish life was like A plus B equals C every time. I wish life was like math. I didn't like math in school, but I would like it now. But it's not. Life isn't math. And when we look at descriptive passages and we, we look at people in pain and God's saying, don't worry, I'm working through that. What we see is a God who is never done with you. What we see is a God who always comes alongside your life, even if it's confusing and isn't prescriptive and isn't working out in the order that you thought it would work. God is working in and through you and he always sees opportunities for you. He always sees things he can do in and through you to pull you back into the great calling of being the image of God, regardless of where you are in this moment. And when we recognize that, something happens for us. When we recognize that, when we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, something happens for us. In a couple of minutes, we're going to take communion. And I want you to know that this, this isn't just a theory for God. He's not just looking at your life and saying, oh, I'm sorry you have immediate pain, but just trust me, I'll work it out. That God himself went through immediate pain from the Spirit's perspective, and he said it was good. Communion is our reminder that a broken body and poured out blood, Spirit's perspective was working towards an incredible end that many sons and daughters come into God's kingdom. And God looks at us and he says, I can do the same thing through your life. if, If I can do it with that, how could you not believe that I could do it with you? 
And when we get that perspective, when we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, it doesn't make our pain go away and it doesn't make our pain less real. The pain that broke that body and the pain that poured out, the, poured out that blood was very, very real. It's not God looking at us and saying, like, pain, don't worry about pain. It's God looking at us and saying, I know what pain is like, but you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. You don't have to, have to let it harass you. You don't have to be helpless in the midst of your pain anymore because you have a good shepherd who is working all things to your good. As you trust him, as you love him, as you let him lead you according to his purposes. Something happens for us when that becomes our perspective. And I believe strongly something will happen outside of those doors when we carry that perspective into our lives. It's not a story of binary experiences. Either things are terrible or things are great. Life is the story of the great God shepherding us towards a final destiny. I'm going to invite uh, the communion, the folks that are serving communion to go ahead and come forward. Go ahead, come. We have some instructions for communion. I think we have a slide. Do we have a slide? Just so you know, when you take communion, come out through the middle aisle and go back to your seat um, along the brick wall. That'll keep the flow going. There's gluten-free communion up here. When you take it, you'll take the bread first and then you'll dip the bread in the cup. Some people eat their bread and go straight to the cup. You can do that. We'll go for it. But, but that's, that's the way that we generally do it here. As we go into communion, one of the things that, that we always ask you to be thinking about is what are you trusting God for? This month. And I want to add something to that. I want to ask you, where do you need to trust the Spirit's perspective in your immediate pain? And if it's not you, who do you need to trust the Spirit's perspective for? What area? And as you come forward tonight, as you embrace God's act of immediate pain that led to spiritual awakening, I just encourage you to say, God, I trust you with that in my life. I trust you to take those things in my life and to make them that. So as we go into this, I want to read a scripture to you guys. It talks about the perspective of the Spirit and being led by it. It's from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 28. And as I was praying for you all this week, I felt like God said, just speak it over them. Just speak it over them. And so what I want you to do is whatever, whatever you have to do to concentrate, if you have to close your eyes when you're in middle school and high school, we have to say close your eyes or you'll mess with everybody, right? But you're adults. So, so whatever it is for you to concentrate and, and to allow God to speak the words of the scripture over you, because one of the clearest ways we renew our minds is through letting the scripture speak truth over us when the rest of the world says, uh-uh. So I'm just going to speak this scripture out. I just ask you to, to ask the Spirit to speak to your heart about where you need to trust these words of God. It says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You are not sheep without a shepherd. You are children of God. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Immediate pain never trumps the Spirit's perspective. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But we hope for what we do not yet have. We wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God, I want to pray for these right now. God, I want to pray specifically for those who have been harassed and been made to feel helpless. God, I pray for the liberation of the Spirit saying to their spirits, you are children of God. You are not alone. You have a Father who loves you and is working all things to the good. And God, for those of us who know that, for those of us who bask in it, God, I pray that you would fill us to be image bearers. God, that even as we take in this bread and and this juice, that we would also be giving ourselves over to your spirit coming in, working in and through us, that a world that is harassed and helpless would know that there's another way. There's another perspective that we could be carriers of that to our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.